Any views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and not of their employer. Welcome to the Advent Happen Podcast, episode 98, the podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm Stuart. And I'm Jerry. In this episode, we talk about containers. Talk about Jerry's new gig. And we also talk about running containers with Kubernetes and other technologies. So, without further ado, let's go on with the show. Yeah, hi. When we're back, we're joinless tonight, um, but we thought we'd carry on. Uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you for the last episode. Uh, I've listened to it today. I've been putting the, putting it back to listen off because it's, it's it's really good timing. I wish I could have made the last one because the team I'm in, we are we're at that point where we're looking at observability and looking at logs and metrics because. The previous team didn't really do much, and developers kind of just do did their own kind of thing. And uh, we're coming. From, I come from a classic kind of uh, infrastructure background, so we monitoring disks and um, space and things like that. And and it's just I need to carry one of my one of my um, goals for the year is to like, implement this. And it, I just was writing down loads and loads of different things um, to kind of basically so I can go to my boss and start things rolling. I think. Just before you even decide what tool we're going to use, um, it's just writing what we want to get out of it, really, and then what and what we want to what we want to monitor and measure, really. Um, I like the idea that is it the golden rule you were saying something about it, the golden signal kind of thing. The golden signals, yeah. Because I like, yeah, because I like we have like because I'm from a .NET house, we you can sync with applic- application insight. It's like a little snippet of code you put in your uh, .NET code, and it and and it basically. Does it all? Does a wiggy wig of the logging for you? Um, but like one of the apps I was looking today, like it was like generating like six hundred errors a day, kind of thing. Like you can't see the wood between the trees, kind of thing. So, was it anyone come any books to read? Was it is, it is it the Google SRE books the best one to read? That one is that what you're saying? Which has got like the free pillars and everything in it. So, so there's a few to look at. There's the um, there's the original SRE workbook from Google, and then there's a couple of others that are worth it. There's um can't remember the exact names i'll throw them in the show notes but there's one where it's more about less le- less of this is what google did and more how to put it into practice and then there's another one by a guy called alex hidalgo can't remember the exact name of it off the top of my head but uh, i think it's more like implementing service level objectives and those are all worth a look because it gives you a different view on how to view observability how to view monitoring how to view monitoring apps through um you know, as we as we mentioned last time, it's it's the whole microservice thing has cha- changed a lot because you're now not just going. There's a single machine. It's got all my apps on. Now it's more about it's distributed everywhere. It's all over the place. There's bits going here. There's bits going there. How do I make this make sense? So I know where to look. And yeah, so them them books are um, definitely worth a look. And yeah, obviously the Google SRE one is available for free. Um, online, uh, but you can buy a paperback version of it. Um, the other ones, I don't believe they're free online. So yeah, them ones um, are, you know, they're, they're definitely worth buying. Um, but yeah, they're just uh, yeah worth knowing. Cool, thank you. I just really appreciate that. It just it just happened at the right time. Yeah, and it, it's it was definitely you know as I said on the one then as well. It, it 
we, we brought Ewan on as a guest and I think I, I felt like half the time I was taking over because it was just at the time I was going through a bit of a transition in jobs and into a team that was working on this exact thing at the time and just ended up being, oh, this is exactly what I've been talking about two days ago when I was in, a, in an on-site. And it was just kind of, yeah, all of a sudden my brain just <laughs> dumped it all out. So yes, it was um, a very pertinent conversation at the time and still is for me now as well. Cool. So how are you, Jerry? Yeah, I'm. I'm not bad. I've, I've, I, I sort of hop around the job market, and uh, I've landed in a place which is also working with Azure, uh, and it turns out .NET. Although I, I didn't actually know that uh, until today, I think I had to ask. Um, but mainly, it's but it's just building infra- infrastructure in Terraform um, using Azure pipelines for the CI ADO. Uh, yeah, Azure DevOps. Yeah, so using the Git repo, we've talked about it in the past. They they've got like an integrated thing with a Git repo, yeah, CI and a, a a pipe. You know, that's the pipeline. So what's the other one? Yeah, the ticketing system. So that's all kind of. I'm, I mean, it's not my favorite UI, but it it kind of works. Uh, and the CI is fairly good because it's like just like a YAML. Um, it's described good. in YAML. So. Um, and up until this week, actually, it was just me and this one other person working on this project. So it's, it's very sort of greenfield. It's, it's basically setting things up from scratch with an old environment as kind of reference. It's like they, they, they got some people in to do this environment, which they're running this thing on, but they want to kind of make it better. So they're just hiring a load of contractors that kind of know what they're doing to, to yeah. design it rather than a massive management company management consultants company yeah. <laughs> so i won't mention any names uh, but yeah <laughs> that's um that's basically how it's working so you're running dotnet core and stuff then web apps and function apps yeah yeah so it's all about uh, apps app service and service pla- app service plans and all that nice. kind of thing and just using terraform to get all that up and running um and sort of pipe pipelines to make everything run in the right order. So that's that pipeline aspect has actually been quite interesting to, to kind of, because it's quite easy to, if something's not going quite right, to debug it and learn quite a bit about what you're doing. So yeah, that's all been quite interesting. But it's good how you can do everything in YAML and everything's just really good. With, well, that's what I've, I mean, it's like the old GUI version you can do for the pipelines, but obviously yeah. doing it for YAML, you can obviously yeah. script it a lot more easier. Yeah, well, I think you can also do something like build it in a graphical way and then output the YAML. Um, yeah. So, which is Andy. Um, but yeah, that's so that's that that's been what I've been doing. Other than that, the freelance work seems to have stepped up a bit of a gear, and I, I'm thinking maybe, or maybe it's the, the work that I'm doing in, in my day job. But I kind of see myself now as designing platforms for my clients. <laughs> Rather than just looking after their servers and uh, trying, you know, fixing them when they break and so on, it's actually designing the infrastructure uh, and and you know doing the hosting myself kind of thing or via uh, DigitalOcean, setting up those servers and designing, writing the Ansible code, putting the Ansible code into a CI system and and that side of things, rather than just logging into the server and running a bit of Ansible against it, <laughs> which was which I know works. It's the big thing nowadays as well, isn't it? You're hearing a lot about platform engineers generally, and it's more about rather than, yeah, as you say, just 
logging in and, you know, making a few changes here and there. It's building a platform that's consumable and then is also repeatable. So, you know, you build one thing and it's, you know, identical each time. So if you need to build it for someone else, change a couple of variables rather than having to rebuild from scratch and just remember what you did last time. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And it, it comes from this idea of sort of feeding. So you have an app or, or you know, you have some code and you – in that code, you have like a, a file, a config file for the infrastructure. And that is basically some variables which are fed into your tool of choice, uh, be it Terraform or Ansible or whatever. And then, so all you have is just the code and, and some variables. Yeah. And that, and then that feeds into your Ansible roles or your Terraform modules or, you know, whatever other tool you're using and their kind of library structure, if you like. So, that this is a different way of looking at things basically and and as i i'm with these clients for you know years at a time i can kind of see where i'm going and and evolve their infrastructure to kind of follow yeah. that yeah so that's 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 all quite interesting i was talking in pre-show about what i'd like to get to is like is that infrastructure is your kind of how you have you how everything they out kind of thing there's because it's come across as like some people that we don't do design it's like we'll just push it all together kind of thing and they want to on a basically so multi-tenant multi-region kind of thing so that if we've got an outage i mean typical like microsoft like we had an outage a couple of weeks ago but it was annoyingly it's a linux because we've got a couple of php applications we're running on a windows on the azure platform and it's just microsoft oh yeah it's oh it's because you haven't got it in two regions if you had it in two regions you wouldn't have this issue kind of thing it's just like oh so yeah i'd like to get to that stage where you kind of uh, you implement or, or design it so that it, it yeah with the with the tolerance with things going down yeah oh, i suppose the one thing to pick up on the um multi-region thing is actually there is times where that can actually cause you more problems than it fixes yeah uh going definitely going through that at the moment with um uh, someone at work and the entire problem you end up with is if you end up going right okay um this service relies on another service if it's not available in this region we'll just fail over to the other one well now what you're doing is you're introducing network latency so you know a, a big example would be something like you know aws or azure will have uh, regions that are uh, one one's one side of the us one's the other side and an app has now gone from oh it's a few milliseconds to get to the database it's now all of a sudden free free 400 so one of the main things you want to think about, especially when going multi-region, is not just, you know, make it so, um, you know, if one goes down, move to the other. But essentially, you want to make it that it's almost like a everything is self-contained within that region. And then if you move to another region, everything is self-contained in that region. And the only thing that changes is the endpoint that the customer goes to, at which point you're not thinking in terms of, you know, if I go that way, well, I need to pull data from here. And now it's, now it's causing problems. It's the whole, you know, almost separation of concerns kind of approach. Yeah. Like as in Microsoft with the front door kind of thing where they, they then decide where the traffic goes. Exactly. And, you know, it's not like, you know, if you spun up a VM in a, Euro or an EC2 and AWS or something like that, you wouldn't then go, right, okay, I want one that's just, um, you know, want one that's next to it. And um, they just go, right, okay, we can do one you next to it. But what we're actually going to do is we're going to throw one at the other side of the world. That's not what they're going to do. Each region's viewed separately, and then you choose which one you do. And it's, you know, it's building your apps in a way that's resilient to failure internally, and then finding a way of making it so you can just fail over between each kind of 
bunch of infrastructure rather than just having these you know little dots here and then it goes to somewhere else and then it, it has to come back to get something else and all of a sudden each request that was you know a second before is now taking 10 and it's yeah it's get getting the customer experience in a point where they're just going you know what yes it might still be working but it's taking too long anyway so i'm just not going to use it anyway so yeah it's uh interesting thing when you bring in multi-region solve some problems create so many more in the process you've got, well, you so. got to think about databases well haven't you kind of thing isn't it where do you have your database isn't it, it exactly yeah <laughs> and you know it, it it's why especially in the in the cloud world i have a bit of a preference towards stuff that you can do multi-write so rather than you know one writer and multiple readers so you know my is a very good example of that you tend to have the primary and then multiple read replicas which you know for uh, reading the data absolutely fine but then for writing it you've only got one place to do it at which point you're, you're kind of effectively tied to one region anyway um yes you can fail over to other ones but that becomes a, a more involved process whereas something like um for aws there's dynamo db um i think as yours version is Co- cosmos db or cosmo Co- cosmos yeah cosmos just yeah. set one up <laughs> and um there's cassandra is kind of similar to both of them but you know managing it yourselves but that can do multi-writer as well and then but you still end up wicked with the issues there because you you know if you write into one place you've still got this whole problem of i'm writing it there but it's not going to be written to everything because I've got to wait for it to be written to everything in the cluster. Uh, it would take actually consistent. Or, a, exactly. Yeah. So, so you're either working on a, I want something quick at which point it's not 100% consistent or I want it consistent at which point it's not 100% quick. No. So you still have issues whichever way you go. <laughs> so yeah. You still got a load of dials to tweak as well with, you know, if you're setting up a Cosmos DB, you have to uh, make sure that you set certain settings correctly and with the right parameters and, you know, some of those you have to just experiment with. Yeah. And one of the things in AWS's um, way of doing it is um, provision capacity. And um, up until a couple of years ago, you had to know up front what capacity you wanted. And what, what it essentially meant was if you got to a certain amount of requests, it would start rate limiting you. Um, so you either had to over provision to make sure that you could service all your requests or you had to under-provision and then manually ramp that up when you needed to. They came, they came up with um, on-demand um, provisioning, at which point it will scale up um, as demand increases, at which point it takes care of that, and it's usually cheap because you've not got provision capacity at all times. But, yeah, just little things like that. It's, you know, that there's no silver bullet. Everything's got, you know, a little thing. You just go, oh, that will fix it, and then you just go, oh, I've created myself 12 more problems by doing this. So, yeah, always something. <laughs> It's a slight, slightly different, but there's, there's, with the RDS um, managed database in AWS, there was like a hidden thing where the, the un, un, under the, behind the curtain, you, you're still running instances, EC2 instances basically, and they're subject to this limit, this CPU credit limit. Yes. Uh, and so this, it's not really exposed anywhere. Definitely not in the UI. But the, the database started going really slow. And it was just because someone happened to know about the fact that the the DB instances, uh, which are obfuscated from you, also consume CPU credits. So you have to tweak something to to make that work, uh, to make your database speed speed back up. There's a couple of bits for that in AWS as well. It's the, I think it's the T2 and the T3 series of instances by default 
You've got cinematic CPU credits per month on that one, and you can set unlimited on it, but it costs more. So you're, um, so yeah, you gotta get into a point where you're just going, this really isn't doing much anymore. It's because you've lost your share of the CPU because you've used too much, or you're just paying a bit more. And the symptom is you're so, if you've just got a, a standard VM running on there, which might have a, you know, a, a, a web server and database on it, it just goes really slow and you don't know what's happening. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Although you can end up with issues with um, there's something called serverless databases within AWS, and this probably is in the other ones as well. Um, again, talking from most, mostly AWS experience, uh, that one is where it should scale up to demand. And this is going back a couple of years. It does scale up to demand unless you've got an active query or an active write. But if you've got a really long query that needs more capacity to um, be able to scale up, but it can't scale up until that query finishes, you've got a chicken and egg and you just can't scale, at which point you still need you still need to provision the capacity anyway. So, yeah, again, it's one of them. It seems like it will solve every issue, but not for everything. So, I've, to be honest, I think that's what half of um, technology design is now. It's working around all the weird idiosyncrasies of, you know, what does this technology do? What does that technology do? What we've got to take into account when it doesn't do exactly as advertised rather than just, oh, yeah, I'll just put these components together. It's the you're almost designing for failure rather than designing for success. Sometimes it feels. If those issues weren't there, we'd all be out of a job. So <laughs> Exactly, yeah. Yeah, people are just going, what, what are you even here for? There's nothing going wrong. And then <laughs> everything's broken. What are you even here for? Everything's going wrong. So, yeah. I was want a quick question. Can we have a talk about containers then? So, well, I was looking at that. The obviously, you can, we're doing quite a little bit with .NET Core stuff. And obviously, you can put them into containers. And obviously, then you can obviously get things, and obviously, you can run your, your, Linux, your Windows code on an Xbox kind of, which is quite cool. But I was a bit confused about, like, could you, if not the Linux, if you've Linux, you a Linux container, because I mean, you, you could run that in Kubernetes or is it like completely different? It's, yeah, it's, it's essentially, it's the same underlying technologies. So a container in the Linux world going slightly deep dive, it uses mm. something called C groups. And what that is essentially is essentially resource limitations within Linux. So it will limit how much CPU, how much memory, how much storage a process can get. And then it puts in a, a sandbox, so to the container itself, it feels like it's in its own machine, but it's essentially just kind of a sandbox part uh, part off. And Kubernetes and Docker and all the different technologies use the same underlying thing in the end. And it's got to the point now where originally Docker was its own technology, but they separated out the... What do they call it now? Is it CNI? No, that's the networking one. Um, CRI, so that's the Container Runtime Interface. And what that means is um, what is managing them C groups, what is managing the containers themselves. Docker is now is effectively a thin shim on one of them. I think it's called Container D. And it's effectively a process that manages it. But Docker now, rather than being this self-contained thing, actually just talks to Container D. And the same thing with Kubernetes. That can use Container D. It can use all sorts of different ones. Um, at which point what the differences then become is rather than Kubernetes does this, Docker does this, it's more of a Docker will run it on a single machine and then you take Kubernetes to run it across multiple machines and deal with failover and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. So a couple of things that I was going to say. So someone that hasn't come across containers before and you're running containers on a Linux system uh, or, or you happen to log into a machine that's running containers, um, you can do a, a PS on on that uh, on the host, and you'll see 
these separate processes running in containers on that on that host. So you can think of it as a load of well, literally those processes are, are contained in in some way. So you know, for for a sort of sysadmin who somehow hasn't come across containers yet, I probably there's no one like that, but. I think people hear the words, don't they? And that's what me's trying to work out. Like I'm, like I was saying, I was talking about my project to work on. Like they've got a container which is like, it's got like an XORG. So obviously somebody's pulled it for some GUI kind of thing. It's got LibreOffice on it. So I'm just kind of, and it's really odd. So you can run this. So they're running because, like you know, you talk about web apps and web plans earlier in um, earlier in your, about your job. So you in Azure, you get a web plan which is basically it tells you what the size of the instance is or the worker. I came across that. So service plan is basically the infrastructure that's going to run your app. Yeah. And that's what you pay for. So let's say you have one instance on that and let's say it's like 50 quid and you get like 10, gigab- uh, 10 gigabytes of RAM or whatever and like so many CPUs or whatever. If you run multiple, you can obviously then run multiple instances or workers and then obviously you get charged for each of those instances you run it. And on top of that, you can then run um, you basically isolated VMs and ice, uh, with shared networking, or and then the highest tier is isolated VMs and isolated networking. But but at the lowest level, you could be running your app on the same infrastructure, it's the same host as, as as other. So with the freebie ones, you can get you are literally running shared. Then you get ones where you get you're literally they are like a virtual vm which you don't which you get the, the the guaranteed resource which you could be running on someone else's on, on microsoft infrastructure and then you get what you're talking about which is the isolated plans which means that you are you you aren't you can't like island hop if or you shouldn't be able to with the with the with the, un, the ones where you got the dedicated hardware it just means it, it, it's more isolated and on top of that you can then run your web apps on there and so like you can just say like so if i run a uh, right little dot app dot net app you then compile it and then you just push it to the to that web app and then then, then microsoft just brings up how many it what number of instances you, you pay for but then also which is what this what these companies doing is you can then run a window you can run a container inside this web app so you're basically doing two lots of containerization kind of thing and this is like, oh my god! And that's why I want to start looking at: Do we need to then do like a Kubernetes or do AKS? Which I'm guessing, which is the Azure Kubernetes, which they, which they, which they, which they, so you don't have to worry about doing anything yourself. To kind of uh, clarify it to the listener, um, the last few minutes we've been talking about Azure serverless stuff, so a way of just basically uploading code, uh, specifying a load of stuff, and then it runs the code. Yeah. Um, so there's a so a similar thing in AWS called Lambda, yeah, uh, and that and that does effectively the same thing. You get a range of languages you can use, um, a load of config settings for for how to run this stuff, and that's basically abstracting the infrastructure away. So it's supplying some values to to run your your apps on. Yeah, so you don't have to run about you don't have to worry about about insulate about running. You have to worry about like the security or the high availability of the app because that's or and I was talking about earlier where we had where the where app went down or whatever. It that it, they said, oh, we had this. There's an issue underlying kind of thing. So yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing we were talking about briefly, you know, just before that was uh, containers, uh, and and that's a slightly different thing. 
Although it's kind of what's running the serverless stuff anyway. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's just the way the cloud providers are differentiating. And also cloud providers also have ways of running containers like Linux containers, uh, as we were talking about. Um, in AWS, you've got something called Fargate, which you can basically push containers to, to, to AWS and then Fargate can use them. Um, and there's, on on top of that, there's Kubernetes, which are implemented in these different ways by different cloud providers, uh, and they the the way that you interact with them is through uh, the Kubernetes control plane. So they're all kind of subtly different ways of running containers, if you like. Yeah, yeah I, I suppose one thing to clarify on that one as well is usually when you're getting a managed Kubernetes offering, um, you still tend to. You know, sometimes uh, not, but mostly you're having to still manage the workers themselves, but the actual Kubernetes API and what's controlling everything, that's the bit that um, the cloud provider manages. So Amazon's EKS, for example. Um, now, let's take this back. If you were building your own Kubernetes cluster on your own infrastructure or building everything yourself, you would build some um, what they call API nodes or control plane nodes, and then you would join the workers to them. The control plane is the bit that does all the work and does all the bits that says run this container te- and tells it what to do and all that kind of thing. And the workers are just the bit that actually run the jobs. Um, whereas the managed versions, they're, they're basically abstracting away the control plane. So then you'll just have to worry about workers. And then, as you say, with Fargate, um, there is ways of using Fargate to um, for them to be the workers, at which point they become essentially managed workers as well. So all you're having to worry about is creating your Kubernetes deployment files and firing them at um, this control plane and everything's managed and you're not having to worry about managing anything at that point. I did find though, with, with so having had experience of Kubernetes and Fargate, like one job after the other, um, you, you're just moving the management from the Kubernetes stuff to the, to Terraform to configure all the AWS stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there is a, quite an advantage. Uh, running Fargate containers can be incredibly cheap. So for, for the actual running the, the apps and, and whatever you're running, that can be really cheap. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, DevOps hours that went into designing the system to make that all work <laughs> yeah from what i can see can i ask them so like obviously we talk about microservices and how you split everything into containers whatever would you have one kubernetes and then you'd run those microservices on top of it or would you have like a kubernetes thing or whatever it is for each of the microservices or do you put them all onto one does that make sense there are different yeah. ways of splitting up clusters. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, I mean, Stu, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk about it. But I just want to say, um, you know, a cluster, a, a cluster is like a unit of, of container, a, a container of containers, if you like. Yeah. Um, and I'll let you go from there, Stu. Yeah, no worries. So, yeah, if effectively what you're looking at is, it, you know, it, it's the standard answer. It depends. If you have an app that is big enough that it needs um, huge nodes, so let's say, I don't know, so, something that's, um, you know, doing machine learning or something that needs access to a GPU um, within a machine or something like that, that you would probably dedicate an entire cluster to that or at least an entire pool of nodes to that. Um, that does that kind of work but generally what you tend to find is um, 
you tend to either have big clusters that are separated in what they call namespaces, which are just kind of like a, lo- a logical way of separating resources. So you can say um, only certain users can access this namespace um, or only certain service accounts can, can do stuff in this namespace, at which point you can then, you know, do multi-tenancy, um, light multi-tenancy at that point. It's There's still some issues with multi-tenancy within Kubernetes, but, you know, if you've got multiple people within the same company but are separated by product, that's a good way of delineating. So you could say, you know, this the people that are building this product are in this namespace. They can do everything for that namespace, but they can't change any others, um, that kind of thing. Or you could potentially just, you know, run everything in the same namespace, all in one big cluster. You could have multiple clusters to separate it out into, you know, different tiers. It's it's kind of... So I've seen different environment, like one environment per cluster. Yeah, so that's, that's potentially another way of doing it is, you know, saying, you know, your, your dev, your pre-prod, your prod, all separated out in clusters as well. And um, as I say, it, it comes down to how you want to design your infrastructure more than, um, you know, there's any strict way of doing it. Um, the one thing to take into account is the larger the cluster gets, the, um, there are some kind of limitations of Kubernetes and that they're, they're pretty high in terms of the amount of nodes you can get to. Um, but if you're, you know, getting into the hundreds, potentially thousands of nodes kind of thing, um, there's, there's the issues of, you know, up, you know, how do you upgrade that cluster and get every, every node on the new version is a lot harder than doing it across multiple, cl- multiple separate clusters. Cause then you can upgrade one and just go, right, everything's now on that version, right? Upgrade this cluster and everything's on, on that version. If you've got one big cluster with hundreds of, upon hundreds of nodes, that could take ages to, um, upgrade. Remember, um, place I used to work at used OpenShift and yeah, some of the upgrades on that would take a, you know, a good couple of days sometimes to, to get from start to finish because there was hundreds of nodes in the clusters and on its own it wasn't a bad idea to run the nodes like that because in terms of management it's easy because you've only got a couple of control planes to think about rather than lots and lots of different ones but then you also have the other problem of you know you come to upgrade and you just think this is just too much so yeah <laughs> again it, it, it's the it depends problem again uh, just in the interest so you know sort of explaining tech uh, can we go into OpenShift a bit more yeah so Kubernetes, we've talked a bit about in the past, and the entire point behind Kubernetes is to take containers and make them available across multiple nodes. So one node goes down, your container can move. It's not the only thing Kubernetes can be used for. There's all sorts of things. that There's all sorts of little API niceties you've got in there. Um, I may go into it later, may go into a different show about something called a reconciliation loop, but I'll get to that in a little bit because that's kind of not relevant now. We could, I mean, one, one really cool thing is that you can just have, uh, can, like, uh, the, the worker nodes we talked about, any one of those can go away at any time and you still, uh, all the apps remain as long as you, you can run multiple instances of those apps, yeah. those apps. Exactly. Um, you, you know, you can keep the thing running with unreliable infrastructure. Um, so you can take advantage of cloud providers cheap offerings which we have mentioned in previous podcasts to me that's that's one of the coolest benefits (laughs) yeah and you've also got the whole um chaos engineering approach where actually sometimes you actually induce failure to prove that your app will handle it in um you know you you want your app app to handle um a node going down and one of the instances of it disappearing 
to make sure that if you end up in a real situation where a region goes or an availability zone goes, something like that, your app doesn't just all of a sudden fall apart. So, you know, things like that. Um, Kubernetes is really good for that because because it's got this c- control plane that manages lots of nodes and it knows what containers should be running. It can just go, right, that node's gone. I'll just spin it up on another um, and that kind of thing. Now, in terms of OpenShift, um, as I mentioned, Kubernetes side, OpenShift is what's called a distribution of Kubernetes, and it's by Red Hat. And what they've done is they've taken Kubernetes and make it a bit easier to deploy. And the entire point behind it is, is you've not just got Kubernetes, but it comes out of the box with things like niceties around monitoring. So it all already comes with things like Prometheus and um, Alert Manager and Grafana out the box. It comes with um, some extra things like it's got a concept of projects and the similar to namespaces except that OpenShift has a user interface, as in a graphical user interface out the box, and projects make it easier to find all resources that are to, are part of that. Whereas in a namespace, sometimes you can miss stuff because it doesn't show you everything. The project's a slightly nicer way of containing things, but only when you're viewing it from a, from a, a GUI at that point. It's doing that by basically talking to the Kubernetes control plane API and, and reporting yeah. it back. Or the the OpenShift API probably. Yeah, effectively, what it's what it's got is you've got the Kubernetes API, but you've also got an additional OpenShift API on top, which a lot of the time um, it's doing things very similar to what's in um, Kubernetes, or you know sometimes it'll just back off to the Kubernetes um, API. But there's some bits that are OpenShift only, and say projects is a good example of one of them. Um, but yeah, so there's just a few, it just adds some stuff out of the box, like, you know, easier provisioning, uh, things like the, uh, this thing called the cluster auto scaler, which if you don't have on by default, um, no, let's go back to what it actually is. The cluster auto scaler itself is a way of when you've got more demand or more apps being added into your Kubernetes cluster, it can go right. All these apps have asked for, two gig of memory each and the amount and there's 24 of them but the amount of nodes can only serve 20 of them so i don't have enough nodes to fill it if you don't use something like the cluster auto scaler that it'll just go right i can't provision these containers at all it'll just leave you with a couple that are constantly retrying until there's resources available use the cluster auto scaler what it'll do is go right okay the amount of resources that are being requested I need to provision some nodes for this. And especially within the cloud provider, what the cluster autoscaler does is it goes to cloud provider and just goes, right, spin me up another node, join it to this cluster, so I now have capacity. That, I mean, that's another thing that Kubernetes does. Um, it, you kind of have these primitives in Kubernetes, which call out to the cloud provider that you're yes. running Kubernetes on to create um, resources like load balancer, for instance, um, is that's that's kind of a big one. Um, just to get traffic into your cluster, you can tell Kubernetes to create this thing, which in turn tells the cloud provider to create this thing to allow traffic into your cluster. Um, so that that's an example of that. Um, yeah, exactly. And that you know, I think Kubernetes, despite the fact that it kind of came along to be a, I don't know, absolutely. It's not quite abstracted the cloud away, but it has made it so you've kind of got a bit of a unified thing to aim for. So there will always be differences. So, you know, you'll build something that relies upon an AWS way of doing things. So good example would be authentication against um, 
AWS's managed version of Kubernetes. It uses what's called the AWS IM Authenticator. And you've got to think about your access roles, your user roles, that kind of thing. That's how that integrates. You wouldn't be able to lift and shift that into a Kubernetes, uh, Kubernetes cluster in Azure or Google. But you could use similar approaches, whereas your main things like your, your containers, you want to deploy your services, that kind of thing. Those would be pretty similar across them. There is a thing called uh, in Azure. There's something called Azure um, Pod Identity, or uh, mm. something. Oh, I can't remember. The, the link will be in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, it, what it does, it takes the Kubernetes RBAC stuff and applies that to the Azure RBAC stuff. So, for, so why that is useful is you can uh, you, you can say that this Kubernetes cluster can change uh, DNS in Azure. And put and point this uh, resource to this Kubernetes cluster, for instance, um, which is useful for just launching uh, or doing blue green deployments or, or or that kind of thing. Sorry, OpenShift. So not OpenStack. Then I was getting confused. So Open. We used to talk about OpenStack a long time ago when we first started the podcast, didn't we? Does OpenShift basically the a Red Hat thing or something? Yeah, so OpenShift essentially came out of, I think, originally a few years ago. Um, I don't know if it was based on OpenStack, but it was kind of their own thing for a little bit, and then they moved it to use Kubernetes around version 3, I think it was. Might have been earlier than that. But basically, they just went, right, okay, everyone's getting on this Kubernetes train, and actually they were doing a lot of uh, contributions upstream to Kubernetes as well, and they just went, we're better off releasing our own version of this one. And as I say, it's it's essentially Kubernetes, but slightly easier. So if you're looking at it from uh, someone who's never used Kubernetes or someone that doesn't use it that much, because it's got the user interface in there that makes it a lot easier to deal with, it's all unified and, um, you know, you can even create deployments and it, uh, it'll give you example ones um, in the UI, you can then go, right, I can take an example, change a couple of bits, and I know I've got something. Whereas if all you've got is a standard Kubernetes cluster, yes, you can go online and find them, but, you know, you might not always be finding the best ones, or it might not be, you know, relevant anymore. It might be missing stuff based on later versions. Or, you know, you just have to know Kubernetes a bit more to use it, whereas OpenShift is kind of... The, the place that I worked at that had it described it as we wanted to get people on OpenShift first so they could get used to the idea of Kubernetes. And then at some point we might move to just pure Kubernetes without, without the niceties on top. And then it means that, you know, people aren't quite as, you know, scared of just going from, you know, straight from VMs to now you've got to manage contain, containers with Kubernetes. There's at least an interim step where it's a bit easy because, you know, something visual, something you can view, something you can click around in and see what happens. So it's almost like a curated Kubernetes. Effectively, As you say, yeah. it's a distribution. Though. It's like, that's kind of what Linux distributions do. They kind of curate all the open source software out there and give, them, give you the most useful stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose in a way Ranch is a bit like that. And the, even if you take K3S, um, which is the you know very small version that you can run on most things, if you look at K3S, it's basic install. It's still got a couple of extra bits in there, like um, it comes with traffic for um, traffic traffic. Well, it's called traffic, but I think it is traffic. I'll get that right one day. Uh, it just comes with that, so it makes it easier for you know um, pointing um, DNS record. Uh, sorry, pointing your DNS to it, so you know you're not having to think. Right, I need to um, sort out ingress. I need to sort out the services, and it now it comes with that by default. It's just little bits like that, and yeah, OpenShift is you know a lot of it comes out of the box with a lot of these niceties. 
Um, and, you know, if it's the kind of thing you want, it's great. If it's not the kind of thing you need, you don't have to use it. And you can also use it as it's a standard Kubernetes cluster. There's nothing in there that's restrictive in terms of, no, you have to use it the OpenShift way. If you want to avoid some of the, uh, some of the things like, as I say, projects are an example. There's a few other things. You can still just interact with it as if it's a standard Kubernetes cluster and not have much difference. Yeah, so just to call back to an earlier episode, uh, episode 51 has uh, the basics of OpenStack, apparently. So go back and listen to that one. <laughs> what went with that, though? Well, how long ago was that? Uh, what's that? Um, I can't see a date. No, <laughs> I can't see a date. Oh, February 16th, 2017. Wow. And it was probably recorded about a month before that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, take take what you hear there with um, the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. <laughs> so all these things have, I'm guessing they have like a container registry they can pull their their all their containers from. They they will talk to a, a container registry, and that that is, but I think that is basically pioneered by Docker. Was that? I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think for the most part as well. Even in Kubernetes, if you say you want. When you specify the images that you want to use for your containers, um, if you specify just something like, you know, Nginx latest, the default place it will go to if you've not changed anything um, is usually straight to Docker Hub. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can change the default registry it'll go to. Or you can specify, um, rather than just Nginx latest, you could say something like, um, there's a GitHub one, I think it's GHCR, um, you'll see in URL sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so ghcr.io slash whatever slash nginx latest, that would go off to GitHub to pull the, um, Docker images or, you know, Amazon's ECR, um, is another, um, alternative to that. Um, and there's, there's all, there's key, I think it's called, um, as another one as well. UAY. Yeah. So Azure has, uh, uh, ACL. And that's what I've literally been playing with in the last couple of days, kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a bit on images that I should probably interject here. So, um, so the, the whole thing with the containers is because you're running the loads of these containers on potentially a single host, you want to make it, you, you want to make, make sure that your container is only running what it needs to run so so i think we touched upon that earlier where yeah that's what i'm saying about this, this yeah. image i've got was got like three gig or whatever so so what, what you don't want to do is take a standard linux distribution um write a configuration file into that and then run that um what my, what a lot of people do is run um a slim down os with just the functionality that you need. So um, Alpine Linux is, is a good distribution for that. It's really easy to take an Alpine-based uh, distribution, which is, you know, in, in the sort of three or four megabyte range, and then just add what you need. Uh, and the the idea behind that is, it's, it's as I said, you're running potentially lots of these things on one machine, and also you want the attack surface of anything that is running to be small. So, uh, if you only need to serve the, you know, some flat files, then you would just run. Uh, most people just run nginx on Alpine to do that, or they just, if you need to run PHP, FBM to run, you know, WordPress or whatever. You just have a container that just literally includes PHP and nothing else. Um, so that if that container gets compromised, then you can't do anything else, basically. Um, 
I mean, that's one of the considerations, anyway. Well, yeah. Isn't that thing like that Martin Winpress works for semi IO or something? Slim, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so what what that's doing is effectively it's um, kind of doing almost like if you've ever seen um, JavaScript or CSS, but it's been using Minify, and it's essentially taken everything that was a huge page and put it all on one line, yeah. and they're effectively trying to be that for containers. So it, it just removes all the stuff that's not used. It does a bit of analysis on it and that kind of thing. I like how yeah, I like that. I've heard of that until we were um, we were the guy with one of our one of my team was showing you how you can um, do you can log in with JavaScript and and like if you get an error and it, yeah, it, obviously when you're doing production, you minute is it called minify it or whatever. Yeah. And it, and it obviously you can't see it, but obviously you can then unmodify it by yeah. putting the code back in. Yeah, I hadn't heard that until mm. in last week. Um, I'm wondering if that sim um, thing, like I've got this problem where I've got obviously, obviously I've got this massive image. How I'm going to work out what's needed from that image? I wonder if, that, if, if if something how you would even know where to start. I would start. I would start with Alpine because Alpine is quite easy to work with. Um, yeah, it's surprisingly easy. It's like it's got a, a package manager, and you just basically add what you need. Okay. And another thing as well is that um, if you're in your build process, you're building the image, uh, you, you're building the software, and then running that in the container. You can do something called a multi-stage build where you build it in one container. And then you get the. It's like CI. I mean, I mean, it's part of a CI process probably. But you build the artifact, and then you use that artifact in another image. So, for instance, you build. Uh, you use Node.js thing to build the, your front end stuff. That produces a load of flat files. You load. Though you put those flat files into a container with Nginx to serve them. And then you've only got Nginx vulnerabilities to worry about, which are probably less than, you know, running a, no- a node server. Yeah. Yeah. And th- th- there's another side to that as well, where, um, you know, if you build in, you know, I'll, I'll go back to my favorite. If you build in something in Go, um, you can do something where you can build the thing in Alpine because it's got the whole Golang um libraries and it's got everything they need and it's got you know whether you need any um ssl libraries in there so it can build anything that's https based but for the most part you would then take a very slimline alpine image build your golang binary and because golang compiles down to a single binary that's you that's just usable on you know linux on whatever at that point you can take literally that binary and stick that in a container on its own and it doesn't even have an os with it because when it runs on when these containers run on linux it's effectively run as a process. Well, the Golang binary can be a process of its own. Yeah. So then your container, I've built some recently that uh, come down to, you know, 12, 13 meg. And it's just hilarious the, the, the size you can get these things down to for, you know, I've seen ones that, you know, even, you know, even doing some pretty complex stuff and it's still only, you know, three, 400 meg for the, for the entire image, including the binary. And it's, you know, doing, doing some of the most, you know, all, all sorts of other stuff. And then, you know, you try and build something that's, you know, for a simple bash script, but because you've got to bring in either Alpine or potentially even Debian based on what you're going to do, all of a sudden your container is about four or five times the size and you're thinking, that's a, that's a two-line bash script. This one's a complex application. Why is this bigger than the other? <laughs> it's be- because of all the dependencies you need for it. It's like those uh, 64K demos back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> Early 90s. Mm. <laughs> But now it's, uh, yeah, I, I suppose the other thing you want to get to with container images as well, I mean, yeah, as you're saying, start with Alpine. 
Um, yeah, the 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 other thing to do, especially as part of the um, CI process, is potentially find a way of running that um, process inside uh, using the container you just built to make sure it, you know it, it makes sure it meets some um, requirements. So you know, if it's a web app and it needs to respond to a certain set of requests, put that in as part of your pipeline, and then at that point, you know, at every single stage that I'm building this, I'm testing it before I'm even pushing it any further on. And at which point, you know, right, okay, actually did need this dependency or it's not quite working. What's the error that's come out of it rather than pushing it and then finding out it's not worked after you've already built the containment or image, that kind of thing. So it's just, you know, you, you get the right kind of testing in there. You don't even have to worry about the the entire flow of, you know, put that in, merge it, get it in and then see if that one works. No, that one doesn't right. Go back and add another dependency. Um, but yeah, for, for the most part, you know, let's say, Start with Alpine and just keep iterating and find find the right combination of dependencies and, and just get there. Um, I suppose the one thing on that as well is if it's a .NET app, um, I know a lot of, um, when I've worked with it in the past, a lot of people use the Debian-based .NET images because they came directly out of Microsoft, at which point they've got most of what you need to run um, .NET Core apps anyway. So that, that might be a good place to start as well. Well, luckily, this is a PHP app running on Apache. So Oh, oh that one, yeah. Al- Alpine with a couple of things would do that in no time then. So, yeah. I'm, I want to get their code and then kind of do it myself. Yeah, kind of thing. So look at their build file and see what they are. And they look, I want to make my own little thing up kind of thing. And then it's, yeah, that's what I want to do. And say, look at this, like <laughs> yeah, your four it- gig file compared to my like 200 meg file or whatever. Yeah, uh, but can you edit a uh, Word document in LibreOffice on that container? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. That's why this guy was. Oh, I hadn't been dealt with the project. And I, I'm giving it to someone else, and like, and because like I'm the Linuxy kind of guy, he goes, "Have a look at this. Why is it so big?" And I like, because you can obviously in the web app you can you can SSH into um, the instance, and I'm going, "Well, what?" And I was going like, "App." hyphen get whatever, whatever command you run to like this what all the package install and going why has it got xorg and <laughs> and um and it's really odd because it doesn't look like it's running oh i must go my head now it um not what's the old init system it doesn't it looks like it's running in it for some reason i don't know why it's running in it and not system d because he was trying to get the he was trying to get a new relic working on it and i'm going just see, what, and then it was yeah. Okay, it was running in it D kind of thing. So I have no idea why. So there's there's an interesting side to that. System D usually you don't run that within a container itself. Okay. The reason behind that is System D tends to control the underlying host system. Okay. And going back to some Linux fundamentals, there's something called PID one, yep. and that's basically the start of your Linux processors. Mm-hmm. System D doesn't work particularly well not being PID1. Yeah. And when you're in a container, whatever you process you're on is PID1. So at which point it kind of, you know, conflict with each other. I think there's been some work at some point to try and get systemd running in containers, but for the most part, a lot of the time, you don't tend to need it. Um, so the one thing I'd say, especially with the new Relic side, I've had that running containers before. Um, they probably give instructions for how to do that one. Yeah. So it's probably just worth having a look at that. It's just one of those things that when you start using it more and more, you obviously you've done it in the past. It's just, just that learning curve of learning those new new things, yeah. isn't it? 
Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, yeah, containers are almost, you've got to think of it conceptually different, even though the way you interact with them sometimes feels a bit like you're in a VM or in a machine, especially if you're SSH'd into one. Yeah. There's little bits you have to think about of it doesn't quite have this or, you know, uh, you know, as, as we're saying, it doesn't have an init system in the same way or, yeah. um, you know, things like that. There's kind of an interesting way of thinking about, so con- containers as immutable systems or, mm. So you fire up a container um, and then you kill a container and then it's it's gone away com- forever. And then you fire up another exact copy of the one that was just running, yeah. which is different to shutting down a, a, a VM or whatever and then starting it back up again because it retains that state in between in, yeah. in between boots. So there's there's a bit of movement with VMs themselves to treat them like that. So the VM is, is disposable and... If you want another one, you create another one, or you you, t- you take an image that you already have. So that image is exact, almost exactly conceptually the same as a Docker image. Uh, and then, so how how do you deal with persistent data? Well, you create a, a volume um, in in Docker or in Kubernetes or whatever. You have a an, a notion of persistent volumes, uh, something where data stays when the container goes away. Uh, or, or the VM goes away, and if you're running on the at that level, so so it brings in this idea of immutable systems, and that's kind of a way of treating infrastructure that is new, well, relatively new, uh, and which which is the way that most most people are doing it now. So most containers have a persistent volume that contains the data, the, the stateful data associated with that container, and another immutable. Uh, volume that contains the config um, and that's generally how you configure a container and persist the data from the container and you can apply that to vms as well yeah and i suppose there's the other side as well there's there's a push to move to as much stateless as possible so rather than you know having to spin up a container and hope that so that the, the the persistent volumes in something like Kubernetes or whatever, it tends to be backed off by a disk within... Um, so uh, I'll go back to AWS again. Um, they have something called an EBS volume, and that's essentially a disk that's provided. The problem with that disk is it's li- it's um, limited to being in a single availability zone. So if you lose all your nodes in that availability zone, for whatever reason, you have net, uh, availability zone outage, you've only got three nodes and one of them's broken, what, what, whatever the reason. If you try and spin up that container somewhere else, it can't access that volume anymore. Um, so the idea is if you push to using, uh, push to try and not store state locally as much as possible and, you know, push it to either, you know, if it's a date based kind of thing, try and use a managed one. Um, if it's something that's just flat files, maybe use object storage or something like that and just try and keep the state out of the container. Then it means that, you know, another one can spin up or even, even more, more to the point you can spin up multiple of them that are doing the same job to take on more traffic without necessarily having to go, right, okay, this is container one, this is container two, this is container three. And if three goes away, I need another one that comes up to take over as container three. It's just, I've got 12 containers, any of them can do the same job. So yeah, the, there's 
I think it was one of the original building blocks of containers, but then, you know, stuff like persistent volumes has come along and just gone, you know what, actually, there are cases, you know, if you want to run a database in a container, you can't just, you know, hope it turns up in the right place. You've got to persist that data somehow. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, some of the smaller stuff, you know, like a web server or, you know, something that's running an API that just needs to return results from database calls. If you can make it so it's not storing anything locally, it can just request can go to that container or it can go to one exactly like it and it's just you get the same experience each time cool really interesting yes i, I like how decide just randomly just start talking about different things <laughs> as we normally do i bet we go uh, wrap it up after we talk about an hour and stuff so yeah, yeah. okay so dave does our audio production uh, we're proud members of the other side podcast network see other network for more details about the network and the other member podcasts and our uh, patrons um, who provide us with a little bit of money to, you know, help keep, you know, things like hosting and other sorts of things going on this podcast and just, you know, supporters generally. Those are Andamo, Dave, Maha, Mike, Stu. That's me, Stuart, not me. So, yes, I um, I'm, I'm funding my own problems here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember, we've got our Telegram group, which is, hasn't been very active lately, has it? I mean, kind of thing. We've, it's been quite quiet. Uh, but any questions kind of always seem to get answered. Like, I had an issue the other day, didn't I, with my um, Kubuntu wouldn't upgrade. But I think that's because they hadn't released a dot one update in the end, wasn't it? Yeah. I think. But it, the but the error messages I was getting, they had obviously removed... I had a 20... Was it, was it, I can't remember what it now. Was it a 20, a 20, no, 21.10, hadn't I? I somehow managed to install the Kubuntu 21.10 and it, and it obviously come out of six months support and then it wouldn't upgrade to the um, the next LTS kind of thing. So Always always wait for the x.x.1 release. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they've obviously removed the support, haven't they? So it couldn't, it couldn't even find it. That's the thing. Nice. Uh, right. They'd removed the... So if you went... So if you go to like you went to like the archives, you can yeah web browser. They'd it, it, it remove that. I can't remember what what um what what it was. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, Telegram details on the uh, website. Yep. Yeah. Okay, then thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. See you later. Bye. been listening to a member of the other side podcast network find more about our shows at otherside.network. side.network